You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frames, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. So from inside, the priests would see gold frames, and through those gold frames, cherubim-themed tapestries. All of this had been told to Moses, and we learn in verse 30, shown to Moses. Moses saw heavenly blueprints, as it were. So when he later gave instructions to Oholiab and Bezalel, he knew exactly what sort of finished product he was looking for. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Most of us are surprised by the incredible detail we discover in chapters like Exodus 26. The Bible goes to incredible lengths to demonstrate that everything Moses did and everything that the Israelites did in accordance with Moses' command was in line with some sort of heavenly blueprint. To most of us, it just feels a little repetitive and unnecessary. But as Christians, we believe that everything that is in the Bible is in there for a reason. But what is that reason? How does all of this detail help us better anticipate and appreciate the person and work of Christ? Here to explore that further with us is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 26. In the last episode on chapter 25, I quoted J. Alec Machir as saying, that the tabernacle could make a strong bid to be the greatest of all biblical visual aids. It certainly does appear to have been intended as such. The instructions are precise and elaborate. In chapter 25, God gave Moses detailed instructions as to the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, the table for the bread of the presence, and for the lampstand. Those are the main items inside the tent. So these instructions move from the inside out, and thus now we arrive at the structure of the tent itself. If you were looking at this entire compound from the outside, it would look like a very elaborate version of a typical nomad's home. A nomad in those days would have had a tent surrounded by an outer enclosure for his livestock. The tent would have had an inner chamber for the women and an outer chamber for the men. And that is essentially the template that's been used here. God is speaking in forms that his people would have recognized. The tent itself in the middle of the compound would have looked kind of like a coffin covered by multiple layers of tarp. The tabernacle itself was a rectangular frame structure with a flat roof over which was then laid various curtains and coverings. So from the outside, the rectangular tent would have looked rather drab and colorless. All the color actually was on the inside and would have only been visible to the priests who were moving and working within the holy place and the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies just once a year. The outer court, like the cattle enclosure at a nomad's home, 
was the place where sacrifice regularly occurred. There was an altar for grilling the sacrifice and a laver for the priest to wash in before entering the sacred tent. The people themselves would only occasionally enter the outer court. Most of the time, they would worship from under their own front tent flaps, which were all oriented toward the tent compound of their god and king. The tabernacle was, of course, designed for mobility. It was small and it was portable. It was exactly half the size of the later temple that was built by Solomon. And that corresponds perfectly to this particular stage in the life and development of God's people. This was a people on the move, living with and getting to know a holy God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain 4 cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. As I mentioned, the tabernacle proper was a rectangular frame structure covered by tarps and tapestries. The ten curtains described here represent the inner layer, the layer that would have been seen by the priests from the inside. Remember, the tabernacle was not a solid building, so from the inside, the priests would have seen this colored tapestry through the wooden frames. These ten curtains, or tapestries, were connected to each other to cover the whole structure, and they had a cherubim-themed design. Now, in chapter 25, God described the design of the Ark of the Covenant. It was a chest with a lid, and over the lid, there were two golden cherubim. So, imagine, winged angels, one at each end of the chest lid, with their wings pointed up and forward toward each other. God said that he would speak to Moses from above the lid, that is, from between the wings of the cherubim. Now, here we're being told that while Moses, or later the high priest, was inside the Holy of Holies, he would also see cherubim depicted on the inner curtains. Now, right away we wonder how exactly this goes with the second commandment not to make any idols or images. R. Alan Cole is very helpful here. He says, In Israel, cherubim symbolized God's attendant and messenger spirits, and so were not considered a breach of Exodus 20, verse 4, since no man worshipped them, close quote. So the cherubim were not objects of worship. They were symbols of God's self-disclosure, and revelation. The picture as a whole, then, seems to be that God speaks through the Word. Remember, the only thing in the ark at this time is the law of God, the Ten Commandments. God's voice hovers above the tablets. His Word 
comes from his word. That seems to be the message. The the message is that everything God says to his priests and prophets, to his agents of revelation, is of a piece, is connected to that which he has said in his law. The two themes here are intertwined. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here for a second because I have a couple of questions about that last section. Um, First of all, I want to go back to the issue of idolatry. I think a lot of Christians have questions about that. I know that in a symbolic sense, idolatry means to treat anything other than God as central or most important in our life. Yeah, Tim Keller very usefully says that idolatry is basically treating a good thing as if it is a God thing. All right, I like that. So even your family, your job, your spouse, all of that can be an idol, even though they're good things. Yes. Think of it like the solar system. The biggest thing has to be in the center. If you take the sun out of the center of our solar system and you have it switch places with Jupiter, for example, then bad things are going to happen. And so it is when we take a good thing that is a lesser thing, like a spouse or a child or a job, and we treat it like the highest good or the ultimate thing in our lives. When we do that, bad things happen. Okay, I think I get that, but track with me here for a moment. I've heard lots of good sermons on that, but what about idolatry in a sort of crass, literal sense? Uh, For instance, is it a sin to watch a movie like The Chosen that shows pictures of Jesus, or is it a sin to use those flannel graph figures of Christ and the disciples that we grew up on back in the 80s? Because some people might say that that is. Oh, nothing on flannel graph can be a sin, I'm sure. That's (laughs) where it's at. Listen, there are ranges of thought on this matter, for sure. In general, I would have to say that I agree with Martin Luther on this one. He, he said basically that depictions of Jesus and depictions of angels and things like that are okay if the purpose is educational. Where it becomes idolatrous is when we use those things as a focus point for our worship. So if I have a picture of Jesus over my bed and I pray to it, that's not good? Well, I would yes, I would say that's not good. But if you have a storybook with pictures of Jesus that you use to educate your children, I would say that's fine. I think movies like The Passion and The Chosen are definitely on the line. And whether they cross the line or not probably actually depends on you as the watcher. If you use the movies to drive you deeper into the Bible and and deeper into your love and appreciation for the Christ of Scripture, then they're probably helpful. But if you find yourself praying to a mental picture of Jim Caviezel, uh, (laughs) then you probably need to turn away from that medium and get back into the Word of God. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it kind of segues nicely into my second question. You said that the imagery of the cherubim in the Holy of Holies was intended to communicate that God speaks to his people through the Word and in accordance with this Word— or something along those lines. Did I get that basically right? Yeah, pretty much. I think what I said exactly was, his word comes from his word. The message seems to be that everything God says to his priests and prophets, to his agents of revelation, is of a piece with what he has said in his law. So, God speaks to people through his word. Sometimes you see in movies uh, an important character like a king or a queen or a president getting angry at God because he won't speak to him or to her. And the sense seems to be that the important person expects something more than just the Bible. They, they expect an audible word or a message written in the clouds or something like that. But the word of God is the word of God. That's kind of the idea. 
Now, that isn't to say that we can't ever receive some personal guidance on a particular matter, but even that will be in accordance with the written Word of God. That is where God most clearly, most authoritatively, and most assuredly speaks to His people. Mm, All right, thanks for that. That's very helpful. We'll jump back into the story now at verse 7. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make fifty clasps of bronze, and put the clasps into the loops, and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. So on top of the very colorful and symbolic curtains that the priests would have seen, there is to be laid a very practical level of tarp made out of goat's hair. This would have functioned like insulation. It is not decorative because it wouldn't have been seen by anybody inside or outside the tent. In verse 14 now, God gives instructions related to the third or outer layer of tarp. So this is what you would have seen from the outside. Verse 14. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. Now, scholars have been wondering for years whether this describes one more layer or two more layers. It's not clear. It could be a third layer and a fly, as it were, an an outer weather covering. Or it could be a covering that had an inner and outer layer. There's also some confusion around the type of material that is being described. The word used here, ta'ashim, could mean porpoise or dugong, or as it's sometimes called, sea cow. Regardless, the purpose is fairly obvious. This is the weather covering for the tabernacle. The net result of this multi-layer covering is that the inside of the tent would have been very dark, very quiet, and noticeably cooler than the outside world. Verse 15. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons, and for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, 20 frames, and their 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames, and you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. 
They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top, at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, sixteen bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under another frame. As we've mentioned a few times now, the tabernacle proper was a rectangular frame structure. The upright frames were made of acacia wood, which was fairly common in that region. The tabernacle was about 45 feet long by 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. All the curtains and coverings that we just discussed were thus supported by 48 ladder-like frames set in silver bases. Across the top were a series of crossbars described for us now beginning at verse 26. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frames, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. So from inside, the priests would see gold frames, and through those gold frames, cherubim-themed tapestries. All of this had been told to Moses, and we learn in verse 30, shown to Moses. Moses saw heavenly blueprints, as it were. So when he later gave instructions to Oholiab and Bezalel, he knew exactly what sort of finished product he was looking for. The instructions continue in verse 31. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. As mentioned, the tabernacle had an inner chamber and an outer chamber, just like the typical tent erected by a nomad. Verses 31 to 33 describe the veil that separates these two chambers, the holy place from the most holy place. Only the priests could enter the holy place, and only the high priest would pass through this curtain into the most holy place. Verse 36. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia, and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. 
So the tent door, as it were, that which the priests would pass through from the outer court to enter into the holy place, was made of the same material as the inner curtain, but without the cherubim design work. It was hung over five pillars made of acacia wood. So you can imagine a priest having washed at the laver in the court, slipping through the curtain between two of these pillars and into the dimly lit and noticeably cooler confines of the holy place. There on the south side of the chamber, he would have seen the menorah, the lampstand. Its light would have been the only light in the tent. To his right, on the north side of the chamber, he would have seen the table for the bread of the presence. Directly in front of him, at the far end of the holy place, he would have seen the altar of incense. Beyond that, the curtain beyond which he must not pass. That's the basic structure and setup of the tabernacle. But Douglas Stewart asks and answers the obvious question. He says, what is the point of this? Simply that God wanted his people to understand that their ultimate purpose was to dwell with him in heaven, not on earth. He gave them a small sample of what his heavenly home is like, required them to locate themselves and their homes around his, and thus taught them the principle that they belonged in proximity to him. Closed quote. Thanks be to God. Hey, Pastor Paul, I think the big picture question most of our listeners have to be asking here is, why do we have to read this portion of the Bible? (laughs) Obviously, I mean, it was important for the tabernacle to be built in a certain way, but why do we need to read about that in the 21st century? I mean, we don't have a tabernacle anymore. We have Jesus. (laughs) Yes. Amen. And, And I totally hear that question. But actually, the question is kind of the answer. You're right. We don't have a tabernacle anymore. We have Jesus. Praise the Lord. In the prologue to John's gospel, however, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's John 1.14. The Greek word translated there as dwelt is actually a word that literally means tented or tabernacled. John is saying that it is in Jesus now that we hear the word of God. It is in Jesus now that we, in that sense, dwell with God. He is our tent of meeting. He is our place of worship. He is our sanctuary in the desert. Thanks be to God. So why do we have to read about the old tabernacle? Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Well, I think it goes back to what J. Alec Montier said. He said, the tabernacle could make a strong bid to be the greatest of all biblical visual aids. So the more we understand the tabernacle, the better we can visualize it, the better we understand what was going on in there, the better we can understand and appreciate the person and work of Christ. Okay, so it's like an illustration in advance, sort of, the sort of thing that makes more sense once the thing it is pointing to has come. Yes, exactly. In fact, I would argue this is why you have to read the Bible over and over and over again to really understand it. The first time you read the Bible, this kind of a chapter is going to absolutely baffle you. (laughs) You're going to wonder, what in the world is this? How does this make me a better person? How does this increase my love for Jesus? But then you keep reading and you learn more about Jesus 
And you start seeing anticipations of his life and work in passages like this. And then vice versa. Passages like this help you see new things in the person and work of Jesus. Such that by the fifth or sixth or seventh or tenth time you read the Bible through, you are making all these connections on your own automatically. When you visualize the calm, cool, quiet of the Holy of Holies and the voice of God speaking to Moses from between the wings of the cherubim, you think of Jesus, how he is so calm, how he is such a shelter to people, how he makes sense in a crazy, angry, heated world, and how he takes us so deep into the word and shows us such a true and clear and beautiful vision of God. Those two things start to mutually interpret each other, you know? And the whole picture begins to achieve clarity for you as a as a reader and as a worshiper. Yeah, oh yeah, I love that. And I think I'm really starting to see that as you say it, that the dots are starting to connect and the picture becomes a lot clearer and more beautiful over time. Thanks so much for that. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget to tune in to Life 100.3 next Sunday morning for the next chapter in our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.